This is Liz Weissman, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author of two books, Under New Management and The Myths of Creativity, and a recovering academic. And this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 723 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 723 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. On today's episode, we're talking with my good friend, Liz Wiseman. Liz is the author of two amazing books, Multipliers and Rookie Smarts. She was a longtime leader inside of Oracle Corporation, really established some amazing uh, learning opportunities and development opportunities in Oracle through Oracle University. And then she struck it out on her own, founded the Wiseman Group, and has been an amazing influencer in the world of management and leadership thought over the past several years. I'm a huge fan of her work, and it was great to sit down and talk with her. We're mostly talking about her new book, Rookie Smarts, so we're going to ask her questions about what is it about expertise that actually limits our ability to come up with the ideas and the solutions that we need? How do we get back a rookie mindset that will help us reach higher levels of performance? And overall, what can we do inside of organizations that are stuck being learned and not necessarily being learners and why it's so important to develop that constant learning mindset? We've also put together a really cool cheat sheet, four ways to get your rookie mindset back or four ways to develop a rookie mindset. It's a great series of four quick exercises you can do to start putting into practice some of the things we're going to talk about with Liz today. So go to the show notes page of this episode, davidberkus.com slash 723 and check out that cheat sheet. Get started on developing your own rookie smarts. And without further ado, our interview with Liz Wiseman. So who are you and what do you do? Well, um, I am Liz Wiseman, and I'm a management researcher and author. I like to think of my work as research, write, teach, repeat. It's a little bit like shampooing one's hair. Well, does see, you know what? Okay, so this is total tangent. I used to say that all the time, too. And then my wife actually handed us the shampoo bottle we have in the shower, and it does not say repeat. So... Yeah. I mean, on one hand, I'm glad that you repeat, but we apparently we don't necessarily have to. And 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 you're a great example of that because your first book, uh, Multipliers, is one that I didn't think you, you know, after that you you could have been done. That could have been like your opus, right? It was awesome. I'm glad you weren't because I actually <laughs> – My opening act and my swan song. Just yeah, like at the same here time. it is. Yep, We're done. Totally, totally. Uh, I mean, I kind of like Rookie Smarts a little better, but that's because I'm biased to that kind of Rookie Smarts idea. Um, but let's talk about that. Let's let's assume someone is listening and they have no idea about the books and the research that you do. Tell us a bit about that. Well, you know, I think um, so. So there's a, a common theme between my work, and and that is I look at how do we use human intelligence inside of organizations, and and that's the sort of the cheerful way to put it. You know, when I'm having a grumpy day, I often look at it as how do we make our organization safe for human intelligence, you know, meaning how do we make our workplace the kind of place where people can walk in the door, you know, where they can badge in and bring 
all of their ideas, all of their intelligence, all of all of themselves. So that's that's really the the common theme between what I study and research and write about. But really, when you look at the the thing that connects my work is honestly, it's stuff I'm interested in. You know, when I I left Oracle, I was just really interested in this idea that certain kind of leaders seem to to grow intelligence around them and other leaders just sucked the intelligence right out of a room. And and that's what led led to multipliers. And then I was really interested in in how that played out inside of our schools. And so I did another book on that. And and Rookie Smarts, this book, it it really began as as a rant. I was actually meeting with my publisher at HarperCollins and we were going to talk about a, a book because she didn't think I was done at, at multipliers. <laughs> and, and I actually went there with a the proposal, but before that I got on this rant and I was telling her about this thing I've always been really interested in. I've always been just fascinated with how, what we know, you know, and all the knowledge and skills that, are, you, you know, that you acquire with years of experience. Like how does what we know get in the way of what we don't know? And I was really on just a total rant about this and she said well Liz that's your next book I'm like no that's my rant that's just something I'm passionate about and and it actually turned into my next big research project and and book see and I and I love that and I guess I, I mean I guess I have a bias for um rookie smarts because we hung out one time uh in and around Stanford and we're talking about I think you were thinking about that idea and I was finishing up writing um, The Myth of Creativity and I, you know, I called it like the expert myth, which is the, 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 the other side of the coin, that idea that when things get hard, we always go to experts even though like our noviceness in it can be an asset, right? And it, the, the, the flip side of that is also true with Rookie Smarts is like we so often get in our own way because we think about why something could never be um, and – we're relying on expertise that doesn't really apply, et cetera. But I think it's actually kind of deeper than that. And, and it's been a while since Rookie Smarts has been out. So I guess, uh, I mean, I was interested, in, obviously, in how do you come up with it and what the thesis is, et cetera. But like, okay, we just covered that. What I'm really most interested in is what is it like to take that message to people who are sort of built in a culture of learnedness, right? Like it's about you go to school, you get the piece of paper to prove you know something. Then you go to work and it's about proving that you already know something so you can get the promotion. Like what's the reaction been to people who are coming, who are in this culture and kind of don't see that this change is happening and it's going to require us to be learners instead of learned? Oh, that is so interesting because I have found there to be two very, very distinct reactions to the ideas. And, you know, and the idea is pretty simple. It's, it's that we tend to actually be at our best, not our worst when we're new to something that, that, that a learner's advantage kicks in. And in the process of doing something important and hard, you know, and in the process of asking and listening and seeking and experimenting and failing and recovering that actually that process gives us a learner's advantage and in times of great stability experience is, is prized and and in the physical world experience trumps in experience for sure but in the knowledge world and in a complex and uncertain world like the one that most of us work in that inexperience is an advantage. So that's the the idea or the premise, as you said. And I have seen people have two very different reactions to it, almost polar reactions. And 
um, there's, there's, I think people like yourself who kind of are immersed in this culture of learning, who see what's going on in the world and say, I get it. I can see how our knowledge and expertise gets in our way. And I think there are other people who have looked at the ideas and, and almost dismissed or refuted them because I think it's scary. Either they just don't believe it and, and it's possible, um, that the ideas aren't good. Um, but I think it's really scary for people who have worked so hard to build up knowledge and expertise and mastery and, and success. It's like just at the very day you built all that to realize that that's, that's not the currency of our current work environment. And, you know, we're working in an environment that's spinning so fast and we're getting new problems thrown at us so fast that it's not what we know that matters. It's how fast we can learn. And in some ways, it's a really hard message for people who know a lot. Well, and I think, you know, the other thing is that we, the old system, we can kind of get to the point where, where we know, not know it all, but where we know sort of enough, right? Like you read the stats and they're depressing that like the average American adult reads one nonfiction book a year after college, right? And, and, and that's average. So that means there's a ton of them who just don't, right? They just sit at home and watch America's Got Talent or whatever. Not to say I have anything wrong with America's Got Talent. If you want to sponsor the show, please do. But the point about like, I don't need to learn anymore. I don't need to keep up on it anymore. And that just seems like such an interesting, um, an interesting concept to have to confront when you're so used to that idea of resting on like, no, I've got an accounting degree. I'm good, right? Or, or something like, it's just... I mean, maybe not accounting because you've got to take uh, continuing education, but you know what I mean? We're like, I've got this degree, I'm good. Or I've gotten this experience, like I'm good, right? It's it's one of the things I've always found interesting is how do you, because I sort of never got out of the learning mode, right? I'm a, I'm a recovering academic, so we just always were, were taught to kind of be that way, but other people aren't and you see it all the time that they... They react very strongly to it. I guess I have kind of a two-part question. I'll, I'll ask them as two whole, wholly different questions. The first is like if you're in that mode, so you're reading through Rookie Smarts or you're about to read Rookie Smarts and you're about to confront that that being – that knowing enough isn't going to work anymore and you need to be able to learn fast, where do you start? Well, I think you have to uh, – let me talk about the destination okay. first before we talk about where you start because I think it's actually – the problem is much – harder than just moving out of this place of expertise and operating in a continuous learning, a lifelong learning space. I think there's a lot of people who are there. I think it's even tougher than this. I think it's about learning how to let go of things. Um, there's, you know, you've probably read from, from Future Shock, Alvin Toffler said, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn unlearn and relearn. So it's not just building knowledge on top of what we know. That's actually fairly easy to do, sort of the continuous learning model. It's how do we, and I think these are really the critical skills going forward, is how do we we size up a learning task? Meaning, you know, because we're constantly being thrown new problems and have to learn something. And we have to decide, I face a steep learning curve. How far do I get up before I abandon this and go on to the next thing? I think we have to master the art of getting halfway up a learning curve 
Like I know enough, not to be dangerous, I know enough about this subject that I know the right questions to ask. I know the experts to seek out. I know how to make trade-offs and analysis and what information is good or not. But I'm not going for my PhD on this because it's not worth it to dive that deeply. I have to know enough to know how to make sense of it and then to let go. So how far do you get up a learning curve before you jump on to the next one, I think is a critical skill. And this ability to let go of knowledge, this is what I think is is really hard. And you know, how do you constantly audit your assumptions? How do you confront the things that you are just so sure are true that aren't true in this case or maybe aren't true anymore? Now, if, if anyone listening, if you are a parent of teenagers, you know what this is like because it's a constant battle of trying to um, instruct them with what you know to be true, but being open to the idea of the things like the world as you've experienced it isn't the world today. And maybe the world does work very differently. <laughs> maybe homework doesn't matter anymore. And and being open to the idea that you are 100% and completely wrong about how the world works. And that, I think, is a really hard space to occupy. But it's what we need to be able to do to remain um, competitive and and relevant or um, of, of efficacy or, or of influence. Hmm. So I guess here's the flip side of that question. And it's funny you mentioned the teenager piece, right? So now, now you're the teenager, right? Or now you're the person in the organization or the system that kind of realizes this. How do you kind of fight the rest of the trend, right? The, the people that don't see it, especially if they're in the actual authority positions, how do you go about convincing people to go on this kind of journey with you? That something has really changed in the world? Yeah. And, well, yeah. and that we're going to need to start, you know, all together focusing on learning as fast as we can and unlearning things as fast as we can. Well, you know, I think there are two ways of doing this. Um, there's a path of being and a path of doing. And one of these, I think, is the easy path. And the other one is is the hard path. I think... There is a viable path around helping people who've got years of experience learn to let go of that and learn to think in new and fresh ways. And, you know, the book Rookie Smarts is full of techniques for how to do this, like audit your assumptions, you know, make a list of things that you believe to be true about the business, about a project, about a way of working and, and prosecute each one of those. Make a list, pick three or four that seem to be very meaningful, and then prosecute those. Where do we have data to support that? And where do we have data against it? And, you know, periodically uh, refresh your assumptions or make an I don't know list. You know, things that you don't know how to do or you don't know how the world works. Make that list and share those. These are all mental techniques to keep yourself thinking with the, the humility and the hunger and the hopefulness that we tend to naturally operate with when we're, when we're in this rookie space, new to something important and hard. I find those kind of the hard way to think my way, to build the mindsets um, of, of beginners and newcomers. Here's what I think is the easy way. The easy way is just to be quick to say yes to things that you don't know how to do. To instead of operating 
in, in your place of expertise. Just put yourself in positions where you don't have the expertise. I find that once I say yes, I figure things out really, really fast. Um, you, you mentioned um, you know, my first book, Multipliers. I am really glad I didn't go down a path of learning how to write and go into writer's workshops and, and preparing myself to think and operate like a writer in the event that maybe one day I would have an idea and a book because I never would have had the discipline to really learn the craft well enough to probably even do it. I just was like, hey, I got an idea and I need to write a book. Is there a publisher who'd be willing to work with me? And I just said, yes, I signed my name on a contract and I had never written anything longer than an email note prior hmm. to writing multipliers. Now, I don't know. I think my publisher probably realized that because <laughs> a quick search on Google would have, would, would have demonstrated that. But once I said yes to it, I thought, wow. I need to write a book. Well, I should probably figure out how to do that. I should probably talk to some people who have done that before. I should probably, now I had, I had never written a book. I, David, I had read books you know, and I had read a lot of management books, but then I go into this rapid learning mode and I'm learning ferociously is the only way I can describe it. Not because I want to, not because I aspire to, not because I made a resolution to learn this craft. I had to. I actually find this path, this path of doing is the easier way, is just saying I'm going to use my hard-won wisdom of experience, but I'm going to keep myself underqualified, meaning I'm going to say yes to things I don't know how to do. I'm going to take jobs I'm not qualified for rather than jobs I'm well qualified for. Now, I should probably say, I don't mean ill-suited for. I just mean underqualified. The job is a size or two too big, and it's a job I have to grow into. I've actually found in, in all of my research that that space where we're too little for a too big challenge is actually the space where we tend to do our very, very best work. Hmm. Hmm. So, I mean, let me ask you this. You're now leading uh, the Wiseman Group. You're leading a whole organization. How do you as the leader keep that going? Because obviously, like, there's, there's the saying yes piece, but people are also expecting, are coming to you expecting you to already know the answers. How do, you, how do you balance that when you're the leader of the whole organization? When there's pressure on you to, to have answers? Yeah. Oh, I think this is really, really hard. I, I, I'm in a role where people are constantly asking me, what I don't, you know, for, for, for definitive answers. And oh, I don't know that I have any brilliant techniques for this, but I am just trying to constantly keep myself operating in the mode of, of questions. And, you know, this is just a space I found to be really powerful for any leader to operate in is to shifting out of this space of knowing and operating in the space of, of not knowing, of, of inquiry. And it's a discipline and it can be made that shift, I think it's the most powerful shift because two things happen when a leader, particularly someone who's expected to be an expert, um, when they ask the questions, it invites, it creates a vacuum and people around them are encouraged, if not forced to step up and, and have the answer. But it also keeps them in a place where they're learning 
and relevant. Um, you know, David, you're a professor and you know this, you give a lot of speeches. So you know this dynamic well. Like what percentage of the time when somebody asks you a question, do they really want your expertise? Or is that question really an opportunity for a conversation? Like they probably know a lot and they have a lot of insight that they'd really like to offer to you. Hmm. So I see that question as, as an invitation for, for discovery. Yeah, that's a really good point. That, and, and a good way to kind of cult, keep that rookie mindset, uh, even when people are coming to you with the answer. That's a great point. Well, and David, let me share, let me share um, an experience I had that really changed the way I saw the role of a leader. It changed forever my definition of courageous leadership. And I think it changed, it really changed me and this pressure to, to know, to have answers, to tell people what to do. I, I was working at Oracle. So I spent 17 years at Oracle prior to the work I'm doing now. And, you know, I, 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 I you know, if anyone knows my story, it's, I was thrown into management as a child, you know, I was 24 years old, thrown into a really big job. And, 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 and when I was woefully underqualified for, and I was asked to build this university, and I did, but by, by being thrown in this job, I had a chance to work with the senior executives because I was thrown into executive management, you know, as, as a teenager, um, so to speak. And I was running the university, and um, this was in about 1995, 96. The internet is now becoming the dominant computing platform. Oracle's a big software company. We're actually really well positioned for for the internet, but it was throwing kind of, um, it was, it was begging a lot of strategic questions. And the three top executives at Oracle that I worked with really closely, we decided that we wanted to make sure all of our senior leaders really understood the strategy. So we got our arms around the top 250 leaders in the company. We invited them into headquarters about 30 at a time. And, and our idea was really simple, which is we're going to have our senior executives brief them on the company's strategy, particularly around the internet. And, and, you know, then we'll develop some leadership skills, kind of pat them on the butt and send them back out, um, out on the field to, to execute that strategy in their country or their, their division. And we had finished up our third program and we were getting some consistently negative feedback from this experience. And the feedback was, hey, guys, we don't really see a very clear and compelling strategy. And you can imagine how the executives reacted to that. You know, after the first one, we said, okay, well, we'll rearrange the slides. <laughs> you know, hmm. like, when in doubt, just, you know, reorder the slides in your PowerPoint presentation and all will be well. So we tried that. That didn't really work. We, we you know, probably changed the fonts and the colors on the slides a sec time. We still were getting this feedback. And I'm in charge of this program. And... I'm sitting with our president, our chief technology officer, and our chief financial officer, and I'm reviewing the participant feedback with them, and they're noticeably quiet, and so worrying that they don't really understand the severity of the problem, I go through that feedback one more time, just so they understand that really our middle executives do not see a clear strategy for this company. I mean, that's hard feedback to give to executives, to be sure. And that's when my boss, Jeff Henley, the CFO for the company, Oracle at this time is about a $25 billion global company. He just kind of gets red in the face and he blurts out at me. He goes, Liz, 
hey, you can stop beating us up. You could stop. He goes, we get that there is a problem. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, man, I was kind of having a good time beating him up a little bit. It's always fun to beat up your bosses just a bit. And, and he said, we get that there's a problem. He said, the real issue here is we don't know how to do this. And David, you can imagine how I am feeling in this moment where my boss says, we don't know how to do this. And I'm thinking, does he mean we don't know how to develop leaders? So that's okay. I kind of know how to do that. Is he saying we don't know how to communicate a strategy? I'm like, okay, I can work with that. But then I realize he's saying we don't know how to set the strategy. We don't. And, and then he kind of continues on. He said, we've never run a $25 billion global company before. Like, this is new to us. And, and I look over and the president and, and the chief technology officer, they're both nodding their head in concurrence like, yeah, we don't know what we're doing either. And, and for me, this was this incredible revelation and, and really honestly kind of a gift. It had never occurred to me that this was new to the executives, that they didn't know how to do something that you might consider to be at the core of their responsibility. Because in fast times, see, everyone's winging it. You know, yeah. if, you're, if you're managing a growth company, and that's everyone's aspiration to manage a growth company, if your company is growing every day, you're underqualified. Every day, it's bigger and more complex than the day before. And they're like, hey, we're trying to figure this out. And so as I'm realizing this, Jeff said, hey, Liz, now if you can help us figure out how to do this, that would be useful. <laughs> like as our head of education if you could educate us, we're all for it. And I just, I sat in stunned silence. See, I thought it was just me that didn't know what I was doing. And, and so I went out and got some help and we brought in the amazing Dr. C.K. Prahalad from the Ross Business School at the University of Michigan. And he coached us through a way of thinking about strategy. We, we rebuilt everything, interestingly enough, around of a few things we knew and a few things we didn't know, a set of questions and we took it back out to that fourth group and it was magical because the executives, they didn't really need their senior top executives to have all the answers. What they needed them to have was intelligent questions. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I think that's a really powerful example too of like not only your realization, but the good that can happen when a culture of leaders kind of get that too. And I, I would argue, I mean, scale is one thing that triggers that, but even just the pace of change going on now, even if you're not scaling your organization, every day when things change, you become less and less sort of qualified, right? And more and you more and more need to take on that learner mindset. And we need our senior leaders to do it. And, you know, we often think, oh, we want them to be strong and have answers. And this is a great place for us to pause and think about Brene Brown's work. And, and what we really, we connect with leaders who are vulnerable, who are learning along with us. And it actually builds incredible unity inside of organizations when senior leaders have the courage to say, I don't have the answers, but let's figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I actually need you and your brain to weigh in on this. Yeah. I know. I agree. And, and a really like, a, in a sense, we are, I think a lot of well, I think a lot of leaders fear is that they'll be seen as, you know, then not having the answer. But in reality, that response, I think, is actually more engaging to the followers, et cetera, that now they're sort of being invited in again to help figure that out. And I love your story on sort of how exactly that happened. So 
I mean, again, I guess we, we already talked about one place to start and, and how to begin with the end in mind. I guess another place to start would be to grab a copy of the book, the, the new book, again, Rookie Smarts, Why Learning Beats Knowing in the New Game of Work. If you haven't also already read Multipliers, just throw that in your cart too. Get the free shipping from Amazon. They're both awesome, awesome reads. With that, Liz, I, I want to transition into, I mean, you know what's coming next, our five questions we ask all guests, five questions with Liz Wiseman. Are you ready? Okay, I don't know the five questions. I think I know one, but go ahead. <laughs> hit, hit me with them because at, at this point, it's really okay, I think, for me to say I don't know. So go. Well, there you go. Well, I think you'll know the answer to all of these. But well, the first question, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, you know, the best advice I ever received was um, it wasn't overt. Like no one said, here's a piece. In fact, probably the best advice anyone ever receives doesn't come in the packaged as advice. It was guidance. I um, was a year into my career and uh, I had done a job for about a year and I was um, being asked to join this other group, this new group, to this, this group that became the university. And I was telling my VP about what I wanted to do and what I thought I could contribute to this university. And interestingly enough, I was telling him about how I wanted to start to build like a management institute and teach leadership for this growing company because none of us leaders knew what we were doing. And he said, you know, Liz, that's terrific. Like, we're, we'd love to have you join. What a, what a lovely contribution we think you could make. He said, but actually, your boss needs to figure out how to train about 3,000 people in Oracle technology over the next year, 3,000 people who are joining our rapidly growing company. And he said, I, I suggest you, you um, help her figure out how to do that. And see, what he was asking me to do is go teach programming to programmers. So we were hiring the top, you know, CS, electrical engineering grads out of the top universities. So we're, we're getting people with bachelors and masters and PhDs from MIT and Caltech and, you know, Stanford, and we're hiring them. And he was asking me to go teach programming to these people. One, it's a job I'm totally underqualified for. I had come out of business school. And, and two, it wasn't one that I was particularly that interested in. And I figured out instantly what he was trying to tell me, which is, you know what, Liz, we don't really care that much about what you're passionate about, but what we, you know, why don't you make yourself useful? Now, he wasn't that overt, but I, I could see what he was saying. And I decided that I was going to make myself useful. And I taught programming and it's still, I probably should not have mentioned this on this podcast because Today, it's my little secret that I don't know that anyone who went into any of my classes knew that I was learning about programming pretty much a day before I was teaching it. And because I think they thought I knew what I was doing. In fact, I live here in Silicon Valley. I see a lot of technologists and people who lead tech companies who were my students. And, and they would say, oh, Liz, you taught me like procedural, you know, SQL. You taught me these. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like they have no idea that I was, I was just learning truly just in time. But I have found this orientation to be extraordinarily helpful is, you know what, find something that needs to get done and, and make, and do it, you know, make yourself useful. And I think a lot of people get bad advice about follow your passions and find something you're passionate about. Uh, you know, in any situation, if you have an orientation around adding value, um, it's amazing how that gives you an opportunity to go do things that you're passionate about. So anyway, I, I it, th that came from Bob Shaver, uh, one of my first VPs at at Oracle, and it was been very powerful advice for me. Yeah, that's great. What's an average day look like for you? 
Oh, you know, um, my days are so integrated. My average day um, is getting up, uh, reading. I start my day with the New York Times. Um, I go for a run. I come back. I get my kids off to school. I'm a mom of four. And two are now off at college. They, they get themselves off to school. I've got two still at home. We get them off to school. And then, you know, it's this blending of writing, of researching. Um, that's, that's a typical day at home. You know, I might go throw in a load of laundry in between calls and, um, you know, then fam- family dinner. So that's a typical day at home. But I also spend a fair number of days out on the road. Um, and those those days are fly, land, you know, uh, teach, and hopefully, you know, you've been useful and, and added a little value. So I'm either on the road or here at home, living a very integrated life between work and home. Hmm. What are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I have to say, um, my, my next book up in my reading queue has uh, Dr. Henry Cloud's new book, The Power of Others. So that is my next up in the read. But the thing I've been reading a lot lately, um, this is really um, might be shocking. I've been reading the Old Testament because about a year ago, I got asked to teach a theological class on the Old Testament. Now, David, just go ahead and say, Liz, I didn't think you had any theological training. So, Well, th- Liz, I didn't think you had any theological training, <laughs> but I learned how you handled the programming uh, issue, and I'd imagine it's the same tactic. It really is. I have no training in the seminary or theology, man. You know, I've read the Old Testament, but I decided to say yes, that I would teach an early morning Bible study class for a group of high school kids. So I have been learning um, to be a little bit of a scholar of um, the Old Testament and the books of Moses. That has been fun, if not comical. Hmm, Very cool. What do you believe that most people don't? I'll tell you the thing um, that my research has taught me is what I believe, and this comes from from studying leadership, you know, because when you study leadership, you learn a lot about followership. And I, what I believe is that people want to be used. You know, we often think, ah, uh, you know, people want to get off easy. What I have seen is that people come to work every day. This crosses industry, it crosses geographies. People come to work every day desperately wanting to be used. And, and I don't mean exploited, I mean deeply utilized, um, being able to give 100% of what they know and they find it really painful when when they can't. Um, you know, we, we often look at companies trying to increase employee engagement or employee satisfaction. Um, the research I've done shows that there's a really direct and predictable relationship between the degree of challenge in our work and our degree of satisfaction. Meaning, as challenge level goes up, as we're asked to do hard things and we're having to work really hard, we love our jobs. And, and when challenge level goes down, when we're operating in our area of expertise, when things become easy, we're, we're dissatisfied. So I think the thing I believe that maybe not everyone believes is that people really want to be used and that we're absolutely built for hard work. And despite the fact that we have modern conveniences and so much of our orientation is around how do I achieve ease in my life, I think ease is actually a path of dissatisfaction, if not depression. Um, I think people want to work hard and want to be used. I think it's like deep in our core. Hmm. 
That's a good segue to our, our final question. So as you know, the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In, in your view, what makes someone a leader? Oh, you know, I love this definition. Um, this isn't, isn't mine. I heard this from Jim Collins. Is that, you know, you're a leader if someone follows you and they don't have to. And that, that people voluntarily um, contribute and follow you. So much of our views around leadership and management are skewed based on relationships of reporting and obligation. And, and I think when those lines of reporting and accountability are broken, I think we see the real leaders are people who can focus and galvanize and direct people's efforts where people would give them everything that they have. And it's all done voluntarily. And I don't mean voluntarily without pay, but you know, you know, even inside organizations and corporations, there's people that you would just follow, people who can rally people regardless of reporting lines. I think those are the true leaders. Oh, that's good. That's good. The, the books, again, Multipliers and Rookie Smarts, highly recommend you check out both of them. Liz, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. David, it is always a pleasure. 